Well, let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. Just before Christmas, we, we worked through chapter 1 and the vision of Jesus, the glory of Christ uh, in his glorified state in heaven. And now as we work our way through chapters 2 and 3, we're considering letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And last week, we considered his letter to the, the church at Ephesus, and today we look at the letter written to Smyrna. Verse 8, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. and You will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This is the Word of God. Probably one of the most ignored teachings of the Bible in the Western world is the New Testament's expectation of suffering. Suffering in the life of individual Christians and suffering in the life of the church corporately. I just want to walk you through some of those passages that, that teach this. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 10. He says, now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for all, by my, or by all, for my name's sake, that he who endures to the end will be saved. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In the next chapter, in John 16, Jesus said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. Same chapter, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Acts 14, verse 22 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3, Paul told Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you 
as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. One more. 1 John 3.13 Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. I hope you came to church to be encouraged this morning. It's understandable why this isn't popular teaching that gets airtime every week. It's also evident in our American context that we've known, uh, that we've known very little of this experience. This hasn't been our experience to suffer and be persecuted for the sake of Christ's name. And one might logically ask the question, why? Because Jesus seemed to be pretty clear that those who followed him faithfully, who loved him, would be persecuted. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. If suffering is the expectation that Jesus and the apostles set for those who live godly lives and serve the Lord, our lack of suffering might actually cause us to question how godly our lives really are and how effective our service really is. Smyrna was a church that was suffering. And I think there's a correlation between their suffering and the fact that they were only one of two churches that Jesus wrote to that didn't receive any criticism. You read these seven churches, all of them received criticism except Smyrna and Philadelphia. I think that's because faithfulness to Christ gets the attention of Satan and causes him to push back against the church, but simultaneously suffering and persecution are a means that God uses to purify the church, to strengthen it and to advance the gospel. You see, Jesus wrote to Ephesus, a church that he said had left its first love. And he said, if you don't repent, if you don't go back and do the first works, I will remove your candlestick from its place. What he meant was your church will die. It will cease to exist. And you know what? If you go to Ephesus today, there is no church. It's ruins. It's rubble. There is no gospel witness in Ephesus. But Jesus wrote to Smyrna, a church that was being persecuted. And did you know that here we are in the 21st century and there are still Christians in Smyrna? If you look for it on a map, it's Izmir, it's in Turkey. But there are still faithful Christians living in that area. And guess what? They're still persecuted. So it seems to be that there's this correlation between the lack of criticism and the presence of suffering. Were they suffering because they were a pure church already? Or are they a pure church because they were suffering? Either way, there's the correlation. When we are put under pressure, when we go through tribulation, when we go through trials, God uses those things to purify us, to purge us of our sins, to help us to focus on what's really important and serve him in an honor, a way that honors him. And so as we look at these words that Jesus had the Apostle John to write, I want us to think about this question. What is it that he wants a suffering church to know? 
Because all Christians do, even if not persecuted like they were in Smyrna, all Christians do experience a measure of suffering. And some of you can give testimony to that from your own life. And what is it that Jesus wants a suffering church to know? Let me give you simply four things here from the text. Number one, he wants you to know he's been there. He's been there. Verse 8, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. You see, everything that Jesus communicates to these churches in the, the book of Revelation is rooted in his nature. It's in his character. It's rooted in the revelation of himself from the first chapter. You look back to chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. He says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. You see, Jesus has revealed himself as the I am. He is the one who always has been. He is the one who is, and he is the one who always will be. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He always eternally exists in and of himself. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need this world. He is completely satisfied and full of joy in existing as God. That's who Jesus is. He says, I am the first and the last. He is the I am and the amazing thing, he willingly came and allowed sinful men to persecute and kill him in the flesh. That this eternal God, the I Am, left heaven and came to earth and took on human flesh and lived as one of us. Among rebels, among sinners, among those who had turned against him and rejected him. We live our sinful lives, yet he lived among us sinlessly, never once committing any transgression against God's law. And though he had never sinned and did not deserve to die, he chose to go to the cross willingly. He laid down his life to take your sins on himself. And the one who has existed from all eternity allowed himself in the flesh to be put to death for your sake and mine. We deserve to die. We deserve to go to hell for our sins. But Jesus, in his death on the cross, took all of our punishment. He took our place. He became our substitute and died so that we don't have to. He died. He laid down his life. He was buried. And he did not stay dead. But he proved that he was who he said he was. He proved that he had the power to forgive sins and to grant eternal life by rising from the dead on the third day. And even now he lives forevermore. He says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the gospel that saves. This is the message you have to believe to be born again. Friends, all of us are born into this sinful state. We're on our way to hell. And unless something changes, we're doomed. But if you believe this gospel, you believe this message that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead in your behalf to grant you life and forgiveness, friends, he'll forgive you. 
He'll save you from your sins. And you can have eternity with Him as well. But it's not only the gospel that saves, it's the gospel that sustains. You Christians, those of you who are walking with the Lord, those of you who have experienced suffering, isn't it a comfort to you to know that He's been there? That you've suffered nothing compared to what He suffered for you. That He is our great high priest who has taken every step that we will ever take. So know this, that He's been there. Number two, know that He sees you. He sees you. Verse 9, he says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. How comforting it would be to hear those sympathizing words, just those first two words, I know. I mean, you who have kids, you've, you've done this, right? You see your kid, they're running through the house. They're, not, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing anyway, right? And it's no surprise when they fall and bust their face and get hurt. But when they do, and you see the pain, and you see the tears, what do you do? You pick up your child, you wrap your arms around them, and you say, I know. Why? <laughs> because you used to be like that kid. You've been there. You busted your face on the floor. You can sympathize. You see their pain. You feel it yourself. And Jesus looks to the church at Smyrna. He looks to every suffering Christian and he says, I know. I know. He knew their tribulation, he says. That word literally means pressure. You see, Smyrna, the, the name Smyrna actually means myrrh. Y'all know what myrrh is, right? What's the first thing you think of? Christmas. Think of the wise men. They come to Jesus and they bring him three gifts. Somebody brought gold. Good gift. Jesus is king. The other guy brought frankincense. That's a pretty good gift, you know. He's your priest. It's used to offer incense. And then this guy shows up with myrrh. You think, what's wrong with you? He's a baby. It's a terrible gift. Because what's myrrh used for? To embalm the dead. To anoint the body of the dead. You see, myrrh has its fragrance, and it's a, a sweet fragrance, but the plant that it comes from must be crushed. It must be put under pressure in order to extract that fragrance. So it seems fitting, though, that the church in Smyrna were under pressure. And through that tribulation, through that pressure, through that persecution, God was extracting a sweet-smelling fragrance that honored Him. God does that through the lives of Christians. You might be under pressure. You hate the pressure. You hate the pain. You hate the things you have to go through. But God uses it. He uses your tribulation to extract a sweet-smelling savor that honors Him. That your life will please Him. These Christians were under pressure, and some were even losing their lives. He knew their poverty. He says that in the same verse. He said, I know your poverty, but you are rich. It's interesting that he would say that. I, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I think you understand what he's trying to say there. Though they were physically poor, though they were losing their jobs, though their employers would not let them work, though 
Everything was taken from them, and they were physically poor. They were spiritually and eternally rich. You see, you can lose everything in this world and still be the richest person alive because you know the Lord Jesus. Because you have that eternal treasure that's laid up for you in heaven. This made me think of of Hebrews 10. The writer says, recall the former days after you were illuminated. You endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. He says some of you have suffered uh, imprisonment and, and persecution yourself, and some of you have experienced suffering because you sympathized with the ones who were being persecuted. You go to visit somebody in prison because they've been put there for the sake of Jesus. And while you're gone, somebody comes and plunders your house. And he says, you receive it joyfully. Why? Because you know that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Jesus knows your poverty, but though you may be poor on earth, In Christ, you are rich. He knew their slanders, their slanderers. He says, I know the blasphemy of those who who say they are Jews and are not a synagogue of Satan. You see, in Smyrna's case, and often throughout the persecution in Rome, the Jews, they may have been Jews physically, but they had rejected their Messiah. They had rejected Jesus. And as far as their spiritual standing was concerned, they were pagans just like everybody else around them. They rejected their Messiah, and then they partnered with the pagans against the Christians. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so you've got pagans and you've got Jews coming together to hate the Christians and to persecute them. They would tell lies about them, call them atheists, because they wouldn't worship the pantheon of gods. They wouldn't offer incense to Caesar. Called them cannibals because they heard him talking about the Lord's Supper, eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. They accused them of incest because they were all calling each other brother and sister. And they stirred up hatred against these people together. Jesus knew that. He saw it. He experienced himself their accusations. So he wants you to know that he's been there. He wants you to know that he sees you. And third, he wants you to know that suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. He says in verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I'll give you the crown of life. He says, don't be afraid of, about, of, what, of what's about to happen to you. No Christian has to be afraid of the future. Because you know the one who knows your days. You know the one who is ordering your steps. You know the one who sovereignly rules over the universe. You don't have to be afraid about anything that's going to happen. He says, some of you will be thrown into prison. 
None of you have ever been thrown into prison for the gospel. And I hope you never have to be. But I think you have to acknowledge the reality that it is a possibility. You look at the condition of the world and the way that things are going overall, and I'm no prophet, never claimed to be, never made much of a prophet. But the way the world is headed, it would be no surprise if in a relatively short amount of time, Christians in the West were persecuted and thrown into prison for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus' words to Smyrna are Jesus' words to you, whatever the future may hold, do not be afraid. He says it's only 10 days. You say, what does that mean? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there, it could be that in the situation Smyrna was in, something was coming that literally would last for 10 days. Maybe it represents 10 general persecutions of the church. I, I don't know exactly what he's talking about there. But here's what I do know. He says, you'll have tribulation 10 days. You can know this, whatever length of time you're suffering, your tribulation may uh, take, it's only temporary. It won't last forever. It may end in death. But it will end in death. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction. You think of all that Paul suffered. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So regardless of how long the suffering may last in your life, no matter what kind of suffering may come, you can be sure of this, when the end of your life comes, your suffering will end too. And for all of eternity you have Christ. Our group, our discipleship group just finished reading through New the New Testament. We finished Revelation this year, chapters 21 and 22. That vision of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth and all that we'll experience for all of eternity makes every suffering worth it. That's the fourth thing. Faithfulness is worth the reward. Know this. Faithfulness is worth the reward. He says there at the end of verse 10, he says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The reward of life, eternal life. Now don't read that and think that the, this crown of life, this reward of eternal life only goes to martyrs. No, the eternal life is the reward. It is the possession of every Christian. Everyone who has been born again has the gift of life. You know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
He says, be faithful until death and you will have, I will give you the crown of life. Perseverance is simply the proof that you are one of his. Jesus said it in the gospels, be faithful unto death. The one who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Hang in there, stand fast, hold to the word of truth, be faithful until death. And I promise you, you will have your reward you will receive the crown of life. He who has an ear, verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, he who conquers, shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death, according to chapter 20, verse 14, is what the Scriptures call the lake of fire. The eternal home of Satan demons and all those who are outside of Christ but he says the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death so there, was, there was a law in Rome that at least once a year everyone had to burn incense to Caesar just once a year you had to come with just a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. You could worship any other God you wanted to any day of the year, any time, even the same day as you confess Caesar as Lord. But you had to confess Caesar is Lord once a year, and you got your certificate saying you did, and if you didn't have your certificate, you were persecuted. Now, Christians can't say Caesar is Lord. Why? Because there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Jesus is Lord. If you want to know my political view, that's my political view. Jesus is Lord. History records the martyrdom of a man who ministered in Smyrna, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp actually knew the Apostle John personally. He, the, the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. And around 150, 156, I think was the year. He was an old man. And he was urged to renounce Christ and call Caesar Lord. Here's what he said. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They urged him to reconsider. Even the guard uh, that was assigned to Polycarp apparently liked him and said, please, what would it hurt you just to take 30 seconds and say Caesar is Lord and save your own life? But he wouldn't do it. They threatened him with, to be thrown to animals. They threatened him to be burned at the stake. When they threatened to burn him at the stake, he said, You threaten me with fire that burns for a short time and is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. 
But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. And that day, at 86 years old, Polycarp was burned at the stake. You see, he recognized this, that though his life on earth would come to an end with the flame, he believed the words of Jesus written through the Apostle John, that he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, will never know the fire of the second death, that eternal fire. You see, though we face death, and everyone faces death, whatever the cause of death may be, every one of us will face death. But even though we face death, because of Christ's death and resurrection, we will escape the second death. You've heard the saying, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You see, if you're born into this world and you live your life for yourself and your sin and never give thought to Christ, never come to Him for salvation, you will die in your physical body just like everyone else. But worse than that, on Judgment Day, when your deeds are considered and your rejection of your Savior, you will experience the second death, the lake of fire. But if you're born into this world and born into sin just like everybody else around you, yet at some point you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose from the dead and you come to him for mercy and he saves you and you're born again, given new life in him. Yes, your physical body will reach its end. It will go to the grave just like everyone else is around you. But you will not ever know the second death because you have received the gift of eternal life. Whatever it is you suffer, whatever the circumstances of your life may be, only God knows your days. You can rest in knowing that this suffering is temporary, that Jesus sees you, that he knows your pain, and that faithfulness is worth the reward. Stay faithful. Persevere. Stand firm. And friend, if you are in that category of people who have not yet been born again, repent of your sins and turn to Christ. He will save you. Let's bow for prayer. Father, your word is faithful and true. And you have given promises to your people. Hope of eternal life. Though we suffer in this world, we know that a day is coming when there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness, pain, persecution, or death. 
we will forever be in the presence of our Lord who died for us and rose again. Open our eyes to see your glory, to grasp this truth that it may change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.